Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. Back from holiday. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing whether Boris Johnson's Brexit plan to force through leaving the EU with or without a deal, even in the face of an election, is a serious play or just another bluff. Plus, we'll be digging into what Labour's John McDonnell said about a second Scottish independence referendum and forming a potential caretaker government to stop a no-deal Brexit in October. I'm delighted to be joined by our deputy opinion editor Miranda Green, columnist Robert Shrimsley and our Scotland correspondent Muir Dickey. Thank you all for joining. And as ever, if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. And since it's the summer, you should definitely leave us a nice positive review. This week, it was the battle of the two Doms. Boris Johnson's chief advisor, Dominic Cummings, versus the pro-Remainer campaigner, Dominic Grieve. Mr Cummings has been the chief architect of the government's tough new Brexit strategy, which says they will ignore a no-confidence vote, ignore any efforts to revoke or delay Article 50, and make sure we leave the EU on October 31st. Meanwhile, Mr Grieve, who is against a no-deal Brexit, has been campaigning to say he will do whatever it takes to stop Mr Cummings' plan, including calling up the Queen. So, Robert Shrimsley, let's begin with where this story began this week, which was a story in the Sunday Telegraph, which was Mr Cummings had told MPs and SPADs and ministers that it was too late now to stop a no-deal Brexit, that in fact, even if an election was held, even if the government was brought down in a confidence vote, then he was confident they could push this thing through and we will still leave the EU on October 31st with or without a deal. Yeah, that's right. And I think you have to look at this as part of the propaganda campaign and the aerial war that is going on, particularly within Britain, let alone between Britain and the EU, because there are two messages that this government needs to get across to everybody if it's going to be at all convincing with its we're really serious about a no deal strategy. The first is it has to persuade the European Union and the negotiators over there and the Irish that Parliament is not going to come riding to their rescue and stop a no deal, that if this government wants a no deal, it can get it. And the second thing it has to do is persuade those Conservative MPs who might be, you know, wavering on the possibility of whether to bring down the government in a vote of no confidence or to stop no deal, persuade them that, that would be a futile gesture. So that's what the government is engaged in doing. The truth is that he might be right, but he also might not be right, that it is absolutely unclear as to whether they would be able to get away with it in the end and equally unclear as to whether they would really want to be holding a general election two days after a no-deal Brexit. So Miranda Green, this starts with the fact that we might well face a confidence vote when Parliament returns from its summer recess and that we've heard from the Labour Party this week, they're saying it will have to come pretty soon when the words of John McDonnell after the summer break and there's this week and a half period where Parliament sits before everyone goes off to Brighton, Manchester and Glasgow 
Glasgow for the Bournemouth. party conferences. You missed out Bournemouth. And don't forget Bournemouth for the Lib Dems for the party conferences. And in that period, most people seem to think there's probably going to be a confidence vote. And following the by-election in Wales while I was away, the government has a working majority of one, an effective majority for a confidence vote of three. And in number 10, they are genuinely quite uncertain about whether they can win that. And so this is really a warning that number 10, as Robert was saying, is to put out these people saying to Tories, if you bring down the government, you are almost guaranteeing a no-deal Brexit. Guaranteeing a no-deal Brexit or, in a way, the government's fallback option, which is triggering a general election, which would be fought on people versus parliament with Boris Johnson as the tribune of the people, the defender of the determination to leave the EU as expressed in the will of the people in the 2016 referendum. So in a sense, this great question that we're all pondering, how much of this is bluff about no deal? How much of it is bluff? The idea that they would actually defiantly carry on in number 10, even if they lose a no confidence vote in the House of Commons. I think a lot of this is to do with actually setting up a potential election campaign and who's on which side. And it's a really dangerous game. I mean, even... Theresa May, who was trying a very different strategy to the Boris Johnson strategy in terms of the Brexit negotiations. She had that slightly worrying moment where she stood on the steps of Downing Street and said, the people have had enough of these MPs blocking their will and only I can be trusted to honour the referendum decision. This is the baton that's now been taken up with all of this rhetoric. So yes, it's a huge question how much of the no deal stuff is bluff, but I think also is to do with setting up a winnable election proposition if they're forced to it. So the question I put for both of you is, do we think this is a bluff? My sense is that I can get from number 10, and of course, as you were saying, Robert, they are playing a propaganda war here, is that it probably isn't a bluff and that their view is they don't want to do a no-deal Brexit, but they feel they might have to. I think it's a proper bluff in the sense of it's a bluff that you're prepared to risk being called. It clearly isn't their optimum solution. A no-deal Brexit is not their preferential outcome. But what they are prepared to risk is that that is the outcome. So I think the mistake people might make is thinking Britain will blink in the end. If Boris Johnson's government is in control of affairs, I don't think it will. And the problem is Boris Johnson thinks that Europe will blink and that's not a given either. So it is both a bluff, but it is a bluff that this government is prepared to see called. Because this is it, Miranda. We could end up in this situation where the EU thinks Britain will blink. It doesn't. Britain thinks the EU will blink. It doesn't. And we have a no-deal Brexit. I actually think that's the most likely outcome. And actually has been for some time. You know, we do have the benefit of hindsight now, but we've been kind of heading to this for quite a while. And we shouldn't be all that surprised by it. What I think is interesting, though, is what happens if you are the prime minister and you are the cabinet in charge of a no deal Brexit, if it does come to that? Have they really thought through the politics of after October the 31st? Because if you really do have livestock burning on the Welsh hillsides and you have got Dover turned into a lorry park and if you've got the EU nations playing hardball on visas for people who travel regularly, small businesses, medium-sized businesses who can't prepare in the way the big corporations can. Look how British people fall apart if they have to wait for a few hours because the British Airways computer goes down at Heathrow. The idea of relying on blitz spirit and blaming the EU, I think they haven't thought that through fully. So as Robert says, 
I agree that they are prepared to go through with this, but I don't know if they've really thought about the political but consequences for the Conservative Party of that, that. That's exactly right. I mean, I do think that the game for them looks to me to be less getting a deal, which they all recognise is very difficult, and getting a series of side deals. And the point is, the EU has a number of options to mitigate the impact of a no-deal Brexit. What Britain is hoping is that it can have a part in determining those policies. And I think the more likely thing is the EU unilaterally declares a number of steps which make it not as chaotic as they might wish. So, Robert, can we just talk about this no-confidence vote for a moment? Because, as I've said, it looks like it is going to come in early September. But do you think the numbers are there for the opposition parties to win it? Look, I don't know. It's the truth. It's, it's much too close. My instinct is always that... Conservatives are incredibly unlikely to bring down their own government. And even though it only takes a few of them, my instinct is not that there are enough. You also have to factor in there are quite a lot of independents at the moment for whom a general election is the end of their parliamentary career. And some of them are not anti-Brexit. So I just think there's a little bit more flex in that majority. And if I was the new Conservative chief whip, I'd be working on some of those pro-Brexit Labour independents to see if you can't just shore up the majority a fraction more. It's much too close to call, but I certainly don't think it's a given. I spoke to one MP this week, Miranda, who was saying you've got to remember there's quite a few different tribes and levels of how far people are willing to go in the Conservative Parliamentary Party. So on one extreme, you've got Dominic Grieve and Guto Beb and probably Philip Lee. They're against Brexit. They want a second referendum and they are absolutely against no deal Brexit. But on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the so-called Gawkward squad. So these are the former cabinet ministers who are against no deal Brexit, who left Theresa May's government. What they are willing to do versus what Mr Grieve and Mr Beb and the others are going to do are very different things and trying to coalesce them around a plan in time for early September is going to be quite difficult. Correct. Also, because the Fixed Term Parliaments Act is relatively untried, you know, this is a new piece of legislation brought in in the early days of the Cameron-Clegg coalition to prevent that coalition collapsing with Cameron calling a general election and disrupting it. We're now living with the consequences of that rather rushed piece of constitutional chicanery And nobody really knows. And it seems as if the advice that Boris Johnson is getting inside number 10 on what would happen in the case of a no confidence vote is actually different from what some of the external constitutional experts are saying and writing. So the whole thing is sort of up for grabs. So if you've got number 10 saying our advice is that we're not going anyway, go ahead and vote and be damned, that also then makes it more difficult for Parliament to muster its troops against the government, I think. I think this is a really important point on the issue of the confidence vote. Is there are two other sticking points to this. The first, as Miranda, I think, was just getting to, is that you would then have to be able to assemble a rival administration to call an election and stop no deal. Within 14, within 14 days. days. And that comes down to being a matter for Jeremy Corbyn. Is he prepared to go under him or is he prepared to serve under anyone else? The second point is that there are other methods which I think people like the Dominic Greaves of this world are more interested in, which is a revival of the Cooper Letwin proposal trying to legislate to order the government to seek an extension. I think that's true and we'll certainly see some of these other actions as well as the potential confidence vote. But if we do have that vote and if the government does lose it, which takes into where the debate has been this week, this is where you've had the exchange of words between Mr Cummings and Mr Grieve Miranda because Dominic Cummings was doorstepped outside his home in Islington and was put these remarks 
to him that Mr. Grieve had said that he was stupid and didn't understand the Constitution. And Mr. Cummings said, well, we'll find out and see who's right. Because it essentially boils down to this argument. If you lose a confidence vote, do you have to resign? Convention says yes, but it's only a convention. And this is where it gets in the dispute of some legal experts who say, in fact, it would be up to Mr. Johnson to stay and he could call an election of a time of his choosing, which would probably be after October the 31st. Whereas Mr. Grieve said, absolutely not. He has to go and we'll try and form something else which we're going to come on to later in the podcast. It's really interesting because the worst insult that you can throw at the other Mm. side in this political battle seems to be, how dare you say you would involve the Queen? And so both sides of the argument are either threatening to go to the palace and demand to form a government or saying, how dare you say that you would involve the Queen, we'll carry on in power. And it is untested. In fact, rather than ending up with the Queen, it would probably end up with the courts because there would have to be a ruling on whether Boris Johnson would have to literally vacate Downing Street. But as Robert says, the onus is actually on somebody to put together an alternative proposition for a government. It's like one of those Anthony Trollope novels where Lord so-and-so suddenly assembles another cabinet and goes to the palace. I mean, we would really be into very serious uncharted territory because we don't have a written constitution. But let's say that doesn't happen, Robert, and we do end up going to the polls. Everything number 10 have said this week is that they would have an election days after October the 31st. And the idea is that as soon as those MPs move against the government, try to bring it down, this people versus parliament rhetoric, where you'll start hearing it directly from Boris Johnson saying it's parliament, the politicians are trying to stop Brexit, bring down the government. I represent the will of the people and they will go into an election campaign fighting that. But... It's an almighty risk because, first of all, the government should be preparing for a no-deal Brexit and all the things that will need to be done. You will see probably markets panic. You will see businesses panic. And having Boris Johnson off on some campaign bus in Devon while this is happening doesn't particularly seem to be the best use of everyone's energies. Well, I think it's very useful to take anything that you hear coming from number 10 with a very, very hefty grain of salt. It doesn't mean that they're not true to the no-deal strategy, but the stuff they're saying on an election, I think one should just disregard large chunks of it as being for public consumption. If you stop and think about this for a minute, if you really wanted to run a people versus parliament election in order to save Brexit, you do it before the leaving date, not after it, because before the leaving date, you can consolidate the leave vote, you can squeeze the you Brexit can't party. With the, I don't think you can consolidate the Brexit party, though. Well, I think you can, because you're saying this is all about saving Brexit and only one party is going to do this. And the Remain side is split because we don't quite know where the Labour Party stands. The Lib Dems are making inroads. After October the 31st, then apparently Brexit having happened, that's no longer true. You can't run, you know, re-elect us to save Brexit because Brexit happened. And meanwhile, you're a complete hostage to what the consequences of your Brexit actually are. So on the days immediately before polling day, you have all kinds of unknowables. You could have all kinds of queues and fights and supermarkets. It could be absolutely smooth as hell, but it could be not. And the problem you then face is you're running a campaign about your own competence and ability to deliver Brexit when the country's beginning to see what it looks like. I completely agree with that. And I think that the talk of an election in the days after October the 31st is all to do with piling on the pressure in terms of the parliamentary face-off that we're expecting in September. Of course, if that goes badly, as we've discussed, they might be forced into election, but I don't think it's desirable for them. And also, we sat around this table in 2017 talking about how favourable things looked for the Conservative Party. I actually think they're in quite a good position to pull it off if they have to go to an election because of the things that Robert has outlined. 
But it's always a risk. And politics these days, in the campaign, things can shift very quickly and very unpredictably. But it's clear, Robert, they are doing everything you would expect if you're going to end up in an election every single day this week. We've had policy announcements at a rate that I've never seen from Number 10. They've announced lots of spending on new areas. They've announced a one-year spending review to get us through the Brexit period. And the very tight messaging that's coming on this does suggest that even though Number 10 and people close to Mr Johnson say, we are not going to call an election, wedge planning case this lands upon us, they are preparing for it. Yes, as you would have to with a majority of one. There absolutely are preparing for an election. I think they expect an election some point this year or maybe very, very early next year. I think they're absolutely committed to one. They're doing all the things that I would expect competent people to be doing in terms of the politics of this. What we have to remember is that at the moment, they're not pushing against anything. There's no friction here. They're just making announcements on borrowing and on some consolidated financial announcements. Anyway, politics is largely on holiday. So they're having that bit of a run in where everyone's just paying a lot of attention to them. I think what we're going to start seeing in the next few weeks is all of those things just looking a little bit more complicated and a little bit more pushback. So I think rather like you, they should enjoy their honeymoon. And finally, Robert, the one thing that we do know is when, if anything, is going to come to a head on striking, a compromise, a new deal with the EU, it's going to be at the G7 summit at Biarritz at the end of August because Mr Johnson is not meeting EU leaders until that point. And that's when there's going to be the standoff where he's going to say to them, look, you need to talk, you need to get rid of the backstop. They're probably going to say, no, thank you. And my sense is that if nothing comes out of that Biarritz summit, then we are full steam ahead towards no deal. Yes, I think Biarritz is going to be very important. I don't know the extent to which anything will publicly come out of that summit, but I think it will set the tone for the weeks that follow. And I think everybody will either think, OK, there is a narrow opportunity or they will start retreating to their bunkers and preparing for no deal. Much of the political news this week has been made up in Edinburgh at the annual festival. We've had the possibly slightly unwelcome trend of politicians giving interviews and making news. None more so than John McDonnell, Labour's shadow chancellor and, of course, the close ally to Jeremy Corbyn. Following all this discussion of confidence votes and stitching together caretaker government, Mr McDonnell popped up and made it very clear that if there's going to be a government to replace Mr Johnson's, it's going to have to be a Labour one. And to do that, he's made some friendly noises towards the SNP. So, Muir Dickey, you saw Mr McDonnell speak twice at the Edinburgh Festival and he essentially said that if there's a no-confidence vote, which he said will come pretty soon, then Mr Corbyn will try and form a government and he would have to lead that government. That's right, yes. It wasn't the sort of entertainment that we're necessarily looking for in the festival fringe, but it certainly got people's attention because I think you could say that for many members of Parliament who are not from Labour, the idea of entrusting Jeremy Corbyn with a caretaker government in order to stop no-deal Brexit is not terribly appealing. But Mr. McDonnell, he insists that essentially backbench Tory MPs are so desperate to stop no deal that they'll agree. And that's the only way to ensure that the whole Labour parliamentary party would swing behind a caretaker government to stop no deal. Miranda, I've spoken to some Liberal Democrats. I know you flagged this up for quite a long time as well, that Lib Dems are not willing to do that, that they don't want to put Mr Corbyn into Downing Street. They're willing to look at some kind of caretaker government. But the Lib Dems I've spoken to are much more focused on a senior Labour backbench figure. Take your pick of Hillary Benn from the Brexit Select Committee or Yvette Cooper from the Home Affairs Select Committee. But based on what Mr McDonald said up in Edinburgh, it really means that that's just not going to happen because they're not willing to vote 
to put him in Downing Street, even if it is to stop a no-deal Brexit? It gets really, really complicated because you've got different subsections of the opposition benches that want different outcomes. Quite a lot of them both in the Lib Dems, in the former Independent Change UK camp as well, and I would imagine in the SNP, but Muir, I'm sure, will correct me if I'm wrong on this, who are still fixated on the idea of securing a second referendum. So a lot of them are thinking, well, how do we secure an extension to the October 31st deadline in order to hold our precious referendum to cancel Brexit altogether? There are others on the opposition benches who now feel that the threat of no deal is such a strong possibility that all should be focused on just preventing that particular catastrophe and that no price is too high to stop no-deal Brexit. This interesting conversation that seems to have been going on in the background for quite a long time, according to people I speak to in the Labour Party, between Labour and the SNP, there's been sort of constant traffic on the parliamentary corridors between the Labour leader's office and the SNP leader's office. And it's been quite a warm relationship for some time. So actually this idea that John McDonnell in this bombshell this week said, absolutely, we do business with the SNP and absolutely, we're not that bothered about granting a second independence referendum if that's what Scotland shows that it wants. That's probably been on the cards for some time as the Labour Party's preferred option in terms of who they would form a parliamentary bloc with. It's way more complicated for the Lib Dems because they've got to work out which price is too high. Is the price for stopping a no-deal Brexit and potentially stopping Brexit altogether too high in terms of working with Jeremy Corbyn, someone who they think is anathema politically, not least because of anti-Semitism? Or is the price of risking that we end up with no-deal Brexit too high a price for compromising and doing a deal with Corbyn. Exactly. And Muir, the thing that was particularly striking from Mr McDonnell was this almost loving with the SNP because Labour traditionally is a staunchly unionist party dead set against a second Scottish independence referendum. And of course, it was Gordon Brown who fought so valiantly during the 2014 campaign to keep the UK together. And Richard Leonard, who is the leader of the Scottish Labour Party, again, has been against a second independence referendum. And then suddenly you have the de facto deputy leader of the Labour Party standing up and saying, actually, we'd be fine with that. Well, yes, I suppose there's a couple of points to make on that. One is that this is actually what Mr McDonnell was saying on allowing a second independence referendum, if it's demanded, as indeed it has been, by the Scottish Parliament, is actually in line with things that Jeremy Corbyn have said in the past. But why it's really shaken people up here is because more recently, Richard Leonard, the Scottish Labour leader, has made fairly clear that he thinks a UK Labour government should not give approval for a second referendum. So you've got a case where the UK leadership is essentially just riding roughshod over the Scottish leadership. Richard Leonard has been struggling to make an impact in Scotland anyway. So it's just another case of lack of clarity and internal division to add to the problems that Labour has had deciding what to do about Brexit. When it comes to the relationship with the SNP, Mr McDonnell's made a fair effort to suggest he wasn't exactly in love with the SNP. He says he's against independence, a a referendum would be a sideshow. He accused the SNP of being essentially Tories, which uh, won't go down well in their ranks. But clearly that message of if you want an independence referendum, you can have one, can only incentivise the SNP to look forward to a Labour government. However, I don't think it was particularly necessary for him to offer the SNP much. It would be extremely difficult, I think impossible for the SNP not to do everything it can to oust 
the Conservatives, given that the only likely alternative would be a Labour government, it would be difficult, if not impossible, for the SNP to do anything other than to support a Labour government in power. Uh, and also, given the opinion polls up here, the SNP would stand to benefit from an early general election, which wouldn't rule out the possibility of a second referendum on EU membership. So he probably hasn't gained a huge amount in terms of SNP cooperation from this, but he's certainly caused Labour big problems up in Scotland. And Muir, I'm really interested what you think about how that might play out in voting patterns, though, because isn't it also slightly a sign of Labour almost giving up on Scotland, you know, which was the Labour Party's great mainstay of sending enough MPs back to Westminster to form a government in the first place, you know, so... I think it almost signals a kind of psychological shift in Labour saying, well, we've kind of lost Scotland for Labour, but that relationship with the SNP can help us govern. And, you know, surely it's also, isn't it a signal to Scottish voters, you know, if you're really pro-union, you're going to have to look elsewhere to the Tories or Lib Dems, not to Labour. Well, that second point, I think that is exactly how it will be taken by some voters and exactly how it will be portrayed by the Tories and Lib Dem, who already have been exploiting ambiguity in Labour and, and lack of conviction, you might say, um, uh, in its policy on, on whether or not to uh, allow a, a second independence referendum. So uh, I, I find it from here extraordinary um, to imagine that the UK Labour leadership could give up on Scotland. Uh, you know, Labour has, has been in terrible trouble up here. But uh, at the last general election, a number, it, it only fell you know, slightly short of taking a number of seats uh, off the SNP and increased the number of seats it did take. Um, you know, so there, it, it's not as if uh, there is no market in Scottish politics for a, a left of centre uh, but uh, anti-independent party. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I must admit, if I was the uh, UK Labour leadership, I would be wanting to rebuild Labour rather than uh, uh, abandon it in Scotland. The result of all this, Miranda, is that the talk in Westminster of what some have called a government of national unity, I think we're using the phrase caretaker government because I don't think anyone could kid themselves this government would bring national unity, is probably not going to happen because even if Mr Corbyn does get the SNP on board, as you've said, you're not going to get the Liberal Democrats, you're not going to get Change UK, and Mr Corbyn would have to get every single bit of the opposition on board, even just to have a majority of one against the Conservatives at this point. So that means a Corbyn-led Celtic government is not going to happen. But because of Mr McDonald's stance, it also means that a non-Corbyn-led government of national unity is not going to happen because even if Mr Grieve managed to get Hilary Benn or Yvette Cooper or Nick Bowes, for example, someone has been talked about, the former Tory MP behind it, the Labour leadership won't support it. Now, I think you would get a block of at least 100 Labour MPs, the people who've been rallying behind Tom Watson's social democratic group within the party to back that government. But without the Labour leadership, the numbers don't stack up. So if we we do have that confidence vote and Mr Johnson's government does fall, then there's not going to be a government to step in its place, I don't think. Well, this is where you get into the real peculiarities of the fixed-term Parliament Act, as we were discussing earlier, because you've got to come up with a viable alternative within 14 days. And I've been following some of the debates about what it really means between the constitutional experts. And it appears to be not 14 sitting days of Parliament. It appears to be 14 calendar, calendar days, days yes. which makes it an incredibly tight window 
to try and come up with an alternative prime minister who can win the confidence of the House. That's the key thing. You can't just cobble together some plan on the back of an envelope and hope for the best. You've got to come up with a prime minister who can be supported by the rest of the House of Commons. It's a really, really tough call because of the Labour leadership, absolutely. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Robert, Miranda and Mill for joining us. In the meantime, if you like what you've heard and would like to check out more FT journalism, then see our latest subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Zanomi Paladze. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.